enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And before we get into today's episode with Rebecca Mera, which is a fantastic one, by the way, I just want to give you a heads up. We have the virtual race series starting today. I should say today, this is going to go out late Thursday night, but you will probably listen to this on Friday or this coming weekend. The 5K is here. I am so excited. So go to the Rambling Runner Run Club on Strava and join the races today because you're not going to want to miss out. If you run all four races, you will get a free pair of sunglasses from Gooder and the virtual race t-shirt that I just put together. Also, those are available for sale. You can find the links on my website, theramblingrunner.com, or you can go to my Instagram page. I'm putting those out through Cafe Press. So even if you just go to cafepress.com slash ramblingrunner, you'll find the shop right there. We got um, men's t-shirts, women's t-shirts, and coffee mugs. I'm so excited. I just, I'm just so excited for this weekend to really get this going. This has really been fun to put on. We have just about a thousand people signed up. Also, we have about 2,500 people in the running group, which means some of you are in the running group and aren't signed up for a race yet. So don't forget to do that because what you want to do is make sure you run the race distance during the weekend of that specific race. Once you do that, you upload your uh, your run, either from your GPS watch or if you just track it through Strava, you then go into Strava after the fact, once it's saved and uploaded, and change the type of run to race. Because uh, the default setting is just to leave that blank. But if you go in, you can change it to a workout, a long run, or a race. You want to do just that, change it to a race, and then you will be good to go. So... In this episode, Rebecca Mera, you may know her from her now viral and famous tweet about helping an elderly couple uh, in Bend, Oregon, buy their groceries. This was a, uh, at this point, a world famous tweet. It was picked up by everybody. It was um, liked by about 500,000 people, retweeted by nearly uh, 100,000 people, actually a little over 100,000. And it was really a sensation. Uh, Rebecca is known in the running world for far more than that. She is an excellent runner. She ran at Stanford. She was third in 2019 in the Fifth Avenue Mile and has such a wild story and just wonderful insight into so many areas, not only of her own running background, but just running in general Man, I could have talked to Rebecca for hours. I wouldn't put her through that, but I admit, I just had so much fun in this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Rebecca Mera. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. I'll tell you what, man. I reached out to you a few weeks ago. And I don't know, maybe maybe reaching out for the Rambling Wonder podcast is good luck because I think it was the very next day you sent out that tweet <laughs> that went around the world like 10,000 times and everyone saw it. And all of a sudden I see you like, you know, everyone's giving you props. Ellen DeGeneres is all over you. You're on all these shows. Like <laughs> what a crazy couple weeks for you. Yeah, I know. Never could have expected what would have happened with just a 
you know, just a single tweet and 600 Twitter followers. But yeah, it's been totally nuts the last couple of weeks and the kinds of people I've gotten to speak to. I mean, never in my wildest dreams. So can you please just tell the people the recipe for sending a viral tweet? You obviously have it mastered. So what is the secret? (laughs) Uh, Don't know. I guess in this particular circumstance, um, I... So I went to the grocery store a couple weeks ago at this point um, on an afternoon after practice. And as I was walking in and um, I hear this woman yelling to me from her car and I approached her car um, and I find an elderly woman and her husband um, and they explained to me that, you know, they're afraid to go in the grocery store and they'd been sitting there for 45 minutes considering what to do. Um, and that same day, the first case of coronavirus had hit Bend, Oregon, where I live And so they were particularly nervous. And so after telling me a little bit more about their situation and how they didn't have family around to help them out, they asked if I'd be willing to buy their groceries for them. So she uh, had her window mostly rolled up and rolled down her window just a little bit more and handed me a $100 bill and a grocery list. Um, And I just, you know, went and got her stuff and brought it back to her car and went on my merry way and didn't really think much of it other than regretting I didn't give her my phone number to help her more. Um, and yeah, I told my boyfriend about it and he said, oh, you have to put that on Twitter. Like, really? I'm not really familiar with Twitter. I got a Twitter six months ago. Um, I'm really behind the eight ball and just never could have expected the kind of response. But I think, I think a lot of why that response was so huge was there was so much bad news as there has been, you know, the past few weeks of like cancellations and postponements and, you know, like the number count going higher and higher. And this was just a, I don't know, nice thing for people to read and, you know, inspired us all to think a little bit more about those who are most affected. Yeah. And to put it in terms of metrics, this tweet has almost 107,000 retweets and half a million likes. Um, Again, this was not why I asked you to be on. (laughs) This all happened after the fact. Uh, which is hysterical. <laughs> yeah, it literally happened, I think, the day after, the same day. It was crazy. I know. I never could have guessed that I'd have, yeah, <laughs> that would happen. It was funny because I, I told someone that you were going to be on the show. They're like, well, of course you reached out to Rebecca. I'm like, dude, this happened before. Like, I, I got nothing. Like, I'm trying to like, get get props, but it was so <laughs> funny because I was like, oh, man, she's probably not going to want to do the show anymore. She's like on Good Morning America now. Like, this, it's all over, man. Running podcasts are over. She's going mainstream. Oh, no, not at all. Um, In fact, I appreciate that you reached out beforehand because it meant you wanted to talk about the running, which I, you know, am very happy and excited to talk about. Um, Yeah, in fact, I've been like hoping for more opportunities to talk about running um, because it's been all like this, this, you know, great story of what happened at the grocery store. But, um, you know, it's nice to get back to the passion, (laughs) the thing I do every day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have, you know, that, that life that a lot of people live and it's, uh, one that I always find fascinating. So you ran at Stanford and we're going to get back into some of your running history as well, but you ran at Stanford, you work in Bend and, you know, you're a pro runner as well. And it's that duality of having that professional life while also, you know, trying to make your way in professional athletics, which is like one of those things where it's, it's uh, unique in the professional athletic world. There's so many sports where you would never do that. Um, but running is just one of them, especially for someone at your age. It's hard for like, you know, a lot of people in their you know, young to mid 20s to just be like, yep, I'm full pro 
no other responsibilities. And, you know, especially <laughs> now with all the races being canceled, luckily you have a job uh, that you can lean back on. So let's just let's just dive back into like on the history side. I know that for you, soccer was your first love. What about track ended up bringing you to the point where you wanted to pursue that not only in high school, but beyond that? Yeah. So I grew up, I was a soccer player and a swimmer. Um, and I really was only any good at soccer at all because I was fast and I was left footed. Um, and I knew that for a lot of years and I did, I grew up in Southern California and a really popular program is junior lifeguards. And so I actually started running when I was nine or 10 years old doing these beach races, like in our bathing suits, <laughs> they were like distance runs, probably like half a mile long and really loved those really did well in them. Um, got interested in running a little bit more and dabbled a little bit in middle school, ran a middle school track meet or two. Um, and yeah, by the time I got to high school, I realized, wow, maybe this is something I'm half decent at. <laughs> maybe I should stick with it. Um, funny enough to go back to junior lifeguards. There are tons of runners that I know that got their start in junior lifeguards. One of them that uh, we kind of laugh with each other a little bit. We've been racing for, you know, however many years, but Nikki Hiltz and I used to race hey! when we were nine years old. Um, yeah. In like our regional championships, um, when we were, when we were kids. So we've had a long history, but anyways, um, yeah. So started running that way and continued onward through high school. That was the first time I learned the words mileage <laughs> and what the difference between a tempo and a track workout was. Um, but yeah, was led me on a journey that, you know, never could have expected. It's always been fun. And when I hear junior lifeguard in that in that scene, when I think about endurance sports connected to that job and that lifestyle, the first thing that comes to my mind is is triathlon and things of that nature. Um, if for no other reason than you have the swimming component in there, so what led you away from swimming ultimately and more towards the running side? Yeah, I never. Com was a super competitive swimmer. I was on a swim team for a while, um, but I never, I never really got to the point of competing. I did uh, compete open water, um, but I didn't. I don't know. I wasn't like super competitive in the same way that I was with soccer. And I think what's funny is I was really drawn to soccer because it was a team sport more so than the swimming. Um, and I always really enjoyed having teammates around me and the dynamic of the game. And so the fact that I ended up being a runner was so funny, but I think that when I was in high school, I mostly ran with the boys on my team and the boys team really became like my second family. Um, and I think that's why a big reason why I grew to love running so much at a young age, because I kind of adopted this like family of guys who I still am good friends with. And still when we're home uh, for break, even though most of them are not really in any kind of shape anymore, they'll all come to the track <laughs> and attempt to do the track workouts with me um, or, you know, just hold a watch and cheer, which is, yeah, it's really special. So which do you prefer them holding the watch and cheering or are you blowing the doors off them as they try to keep up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, I love it when they actually come and do the workouts with me. From time to time, they get in goofy competitions with each other and we'll like get back in shape and then we all can like run together quite a bit more. But, you know, just having people around, I think that something I think my college coach told me is like, it can be, you know, professional running can be really lonely. And it isn't lonely for me on a daily basis because I have teammates. But when you're home for breaks and if you're gone for a few weeks, you know, you're doing a lot on your own. So I always feel really, really grateful when they, you know, get in shape and come and jump in. But whether they're holding the watch or whether they're, you know, running with me, it's still really meaningful. 
And I think there's a big difference in terms of the team component for someone who's more of a track athlete versus someone who runs long distance. Can you speak to that at all? Not only in terms of high school and college, but even in the professional ranks, it just seems like it's easier to have people around you in that circumstance. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'd say that's the case for people who are, I even say 800 meter and up. Um, I think it's become really popular and really common uh, to join like professional post-collegiate programs. Um, And I think that's really awesome because like I said, in a sport that can be so lonely, it gives you an opportunity to have a team. Um, And that's something that I always valued when I was in high school. And then also when I was at Stanford was like being surrounded by people who would lift me up. Um, And I've been really lucky to find that with my current team, Little Wing Athletics and Bend, um, that, you know, we have an awesome group of women that all bring their own strengths to the table and can push each other, but also can be there for each other when we need it. So that's been really, really integral to how I've run the last year and a half is having, having them. Now, as a track athlete, you know, someone who's running the, the 1500 and the 800 meter, obviously there's a huge aerobic component as well as a strong you know, strength running component as well. So how often are you on the track versus running, say, like an hour long run or hour and a half out on the roads or the trails? So yeah, on any given week can kind of shift a little bit and it shifts from season to season. Uh, Lauren Fleshman, my coach, doesn't like to have us on the track um, a whole lot in the fall just to kind of preserve us both physically and mentally. So we'll do a lot of dirt loops, a lot of tempos, um, some hills if we want to get in some speed. And every once in a while, she like dangles a carrot in front of me and lets me run on the track. (laughs) I'm very much a track kid. I love it. Um, And then I you know, over the last few months in the winter and early spring, we'll have like one track workout a week. And the other day in the week will be like tempo or something off the track. And really, we aren't doing two workouts a week on the track until like the thick of, you know, track season. And even then, maybe still one of your days on the track a week is a race. So that's been really different for me. Um, But in terms of other workouts, we'll usually work out these days, Tuesday, Friday, and then Monday, Thursday, I've been doing doubles, um, which for me is like, you know, six miles plus three miles or six miles plus four miles in that range. Um, I'll run kind of a medium longer run, I guess, like eight miles or so, eight to nine. And then my long run these days, which is big for me, I've like cracked the half marathon, (laughs) but it's like 12 to 14, uh, depending on the week. So that's generally around 60 miles a week total. And depending on the time of year, it'll be more or less on the track. But clearly, I love the track days. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. That's for sure. And you know, being able to run fast, oftentimes, especially for someone with your pedigree, can be the really, you know, the, mo- the most enjoyable part of that. So going back to your history, after you really took a liking to track and really engaged with that and had this great experience with your teammates, what was the key factors that brought you to Stanford? Oh, yeah, bringing me back. Um, yeah, so I had, I grew up in Southern California and I had always idolized like the Stanford athletes and some of the folks who'd come out of the program. Um, I remember watching like Carrie Walsh on television, who's a volleyball player. And she, you know, I saw her in her Stanford uniform. There were just little things growing up in Southern California too, that Stanford just, you know, really excited me. And then when I got older, actually went to a soccer tournament in ninth grade. Um, and I went to Stanford. I ended up meeting the Stanford coaches and I felt like I was meeting celebrities. It was so much fun. Um, but it, part of the reason why I ended up really as a you know, 16, 17 year old deciding that it was the best place for me was one, the team. They were wonderful people and super welcoming. And when I 
kind of was on that campus, I felt like I was at home with the people I was with, but also I knew I needed a place or I wanted to be in a place where I was challenged both like intellectually and I was challenged on the track. Like I knew if I was on that team, they were going to be at all times, 10 people who are faster than me. <laughs> so I knew that that would push me to be better. Um, and then also, yeah, push to be better in the classroom too, because it's such a rigorous academic place. So I was really lucky to have the best of both worlds and have such a strong family feeling there too. Well, you are underselling your running a little bit there, Rebecca, because you're also third all time in the 1500 meter <laughs> at Stanford. So I wouldn't say there was 10 people all the time that were faster than you because you certainly have a pedigree of your own. Um, now, for so many college runners, you often see this this um, this sense of relief when they graduate because they've just been burnt out. They've been working so hard for so long, not only in running, but in all areas of their life. And obviously, Stanford has a rigorous academic side, and you took to it as well. Um, you're now, you know, you, know, you studied international relations, and you have the politics side, and now you're working in, you know, in local government in Bend. So what was it like for you managing all of these passions and still trying to live you know, a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So I went through a lot of changes when I was in college. Um, I got hurt pretty quickly my freshman year. Um, I had a pretty severe stress fracture in my femur um, towards the end of my freshman year. And that was the first time in which, you know, I wasn't able to cross train. I wasn't able to do anything. And so I really turned off my athletic brain and I was able to focus on like what was going on in school and what I wanted to, you know, think about and care about. Um, and I had a really great sophomore year in which I was thinking more about athletics, but then it happened again. As a junior, I had three stress fractures. And so I really then turned off my athletic brain. Um, and I spent a lot of time like getting to know my, you know, other folks in my dorm, like making friends. Um, I became interested in international relations and I ended up writing a thesis and I got to study abroad and all these things that I think that I would not have maybe picked my head up to see had I not been injured. And so in a weird way, the injuries were a blessing in disguise um, because I had an opportunity to take advantage of all of the amazing things at the university and really like get to know who I was as a person and what I wanted to do that was outside of the running. Um, and so, you know, it's funny, you said I was third on the all-time list, but that happened in literally my final race in a Stanford uniform, um, because I did spend a lot of my time in and out of injuries. And because of that, it really shaped like what I wanted to do and really gave me more clarity perhaps than other athletes and even other friends I had, um, because I spent so much time off the track, um, that ultimately actually, um, I went and got a full-time job when I graduated from college because, I kind of nailed that job down right before championship season um, in my fifth year. And I ended up having like several of the best races of my life. <laughs> and I never knew that I'd actually have the opportunity to keep running. And I'm so glad that that I have had this opportunity. And I actually ended up leaving that full-time job after five or six months um, and focusing more on the running and getting a part-time job. But it was definitely, definitely a journey of learning, <laughs> to say the least. So when you were battling these numerous injuries over several years, and you're also engaging on the academic side in something that you're passionate about, what kept you in the sport instead of disengaging and just staying 100% um, focused on the academic side? Yeah, so I never was fully disengaged. Um, I was always still around teammates. I went to practice all the time. I think 
really, and I've told my teammates this, especially several of them, um, my teammates carried me through the times in which I thought I wasn't good enough to run anymore or, you know, I was getting injured too many times. I almost had to medically retire when I was a junior because I just was having so many awful stress fractures. Um, that yeah, it was my teammates and their belief in me and our belief in each other that really just kind of got me back on the horse. Um, and then also like this inherent belief in myself that I could still run faster than I had. And I really wanted to, and I wanted to prove to myself that like I could achieve these goals that like I had going in as a freshman, like I wanted to make an NCAA final, wanted, wanted to put myself in the hunt. And so it was like so fulfilling in the end to get to do that. Um, end of my fifth year in 2017, that it really just created kind of a, I don't know, a jump, jump spring, I suppose, for me to get to continue on to run because I was so excited that I finally felt like, wow, this is what it's like if I don't get hurt (laughs) and if I can, you know, actually have great races. So yeah, that was really amazing that that all came together for me. But I think that that's been my pursuit all along is, um, to get to be around wonderful people, but to also to get to see what I can do. And that's really fun. So what changes did you make that allowed you to kind of get past the, the this rash of stress fractures to try to make sure that that didn't happen again in the future? Yeah, a couple of things. So Lauren has been amazing. I think in many ways, I didn't know how to like say no. <laughs> I would want to run through workouts and do things even when something was hurting just a little bit. And she's really taught me to like listen to my body and be okay with missing out on a day or two here and there to save, you know, a six week training block that you might miss if you run through an injury. Um, so that's been really big. I think another thing I've done differently um, that's really big with my team is we run really slow on easy days. I run slower on my easy days now than I did when I was 14 or 15 years old, which would probably confuse most people, but we run really hard. We bring it on the hard days and on the easy days, we, you know, give ourselves a break. Um, And then I'd say the last piece that I changed a lot, you know, 18, 19 year old me, when I didn't like stuff in the dining hall, I'd eat Lucky Charms for dinner. That's not like... Yes, Rebecca. Why would you change that? (laughs) That sounds wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, I'll still have the bowl of Lucky Charms sometimes, but I'll also eat like some vegetables and some chicken and some <laughs> proper food <laughs> besides just the sugar. So, I mean, I, I've definitely gotten better over time, but like addressing the nutrition and making sure I'm eating right after workouts and eating balanced meals and eating vegetables. I know that sounds so ridiculous, but I didn't used to do that. Um, so definitely have changed that as well. <laughs> All right, so let's put a number to how slow you're going on easy days. Now, this this podcast is predominantly for and about dedicated amateur runners. And while you are a professional, I feel like a lot of things that you have gone through can inform a lot of the people who are listening. And going slow on easy days is a topic that I think is even more important for for dedicated amateurs than it is for someone at your level because so many of us oftentimes, you know, put the pedal to the metal a little bit too hard, in part because we don't go necessarily as hard (laughs) on our hard days as you do, you know, so maybe we have a little bit more gas in the tank on those easy days. So how slow do you go? Yeah, so I now run around eight minute pace. um, And that's uh, kind of an estimate. Some days I feel a little bit better. And I'll run, you know, 730 pace. And other days I feel more tired. And it's more like, 
815, 830 pace, um, especially if I'm at altitude, uh, even slower than that even. So that, you know, and we run with heart rate monitors, which is something I also should mention I never used to do. Um, and I try to keep my heart rate around, for me, like between 140 and 145 or even below that. And that's how I know I'm really keeping it easy. Um, when I was in high school, I used to run with the boys that I mentioned earlier, and we'd run, I don't know, 645 pace quite often. And I'd say the same for college. And I was really gassed at the end of those days, not so much in high school, but more in college, because um, I was doing hard workouts in between those days. And so, yeah, I definitely had to to learn <laughs> how to, you know, listen to my heart rate uh, and to, you know, run slower. So depends on the day. Now, in college, was that the instruction you were getting in terms of how to run in your easy days? Or was that just kind of like a, a pack mentality where, you know, one person goes a little faster and the group stays with it? And then all of a sudden, the whole group is going fast? Definitely the latter. Um, when you have like a big group of women who are all very competitive and all want to run fast, um, you know, we all just pushed each other all the time, whether we were on the track in a workout, which is, you know, probably a more appropriate time to push yourselves. Um, or if we were, you know, on an eight mile run in a normal day or on a long run. So yeah, just definitely pack mentality. <laughs> so would you, so your, your fifth year, it ends with a bang. All of a sudden you've gotten past these injuries. You're now at like the top of your game and all of a sudden the idea of what you're going to do post-college has, you know, it's almost like a paradigm shifting moment. So when did it become a reality for you in terms of not only like, hey, like maybe I can become a pro, but all of a sudden you have, you're having, um, you access to either sponsors and coaches that, you know, you, you that would provide you with the opportunity not only to go pro, but to really embrace it and go kind of full force in that direction. Yeah, so... That's so funny. I actually was injured my fifth year. I missed indoor NCAAs after our team qualified. We were really big on the DMR in college, which we never were able to win, but we were so close. Um, and I started off my season in May, which is much later than most people. And I just kind of put my head down and hoped that like what I could do every race was good enough. And I was fifth um, in each of my qualifying rounds. And uh, for people who are unfamiliar with this, there are various rounds of NCAAs to get to the final national championship race. You first have to qualify for NCAA regionals and there's two regionals in East and West. Um, and then you have to get through two rounds in the women's 1500 in, of races. And the last auto qualifying spot in each race to get to the next round is fifth. <laughs> so I was fifth in the first round, fifth in the second round, barely diving across the finish line. And then I was fifth again um, when I actually got to Eugene and raced at the national championships um, in the prelim, like diving for fifth. Um, and the irony was I ended up sixth <laughs> in the actual final. Um, but yeah, I just didn't realize that I, you know, have the kind of opportunities that came from being in an NCAA final and running at a U.S. championships. Um, I just wasn't expecting it. I knew it was possible, but I'd set up my life in a way to not be a runner anymore. Like I'd taken a full-time job and I was excited about it and it was an awesome job and I had fantastic coworkers and a great boss. Um, but over that summer, after all of that happened, I realized I might actually have the opportunity to keep running. Um, and I knew very little about it. And I kind of didn't know who to talk to, who to ask. Like most 
folks who were signing contracts, like already had been talking to agents, had signed an agent, you know, had signed with a team. I was so behind the eight ball. Um, but I was lucky that, you know, I was able to reach out. I visited a couple different teams, some of the East Coast um, and some of the West Coast and uh, ultimately also still trying to decide if I want to leave my full-time job or not. Um, and then I had... I, I met this woman, uh, Sasha Golish, who's Canadian, and she's run everything from the 800 to the marathon. She's crazy, fast, amazing. And she was sponsored by Wazell. And I had this conversation with her and she said, you know, why don't you reach out? And I said, I don't know. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if they'll want to talk to me. And so I wrote this long, heartfelt email to Sarah Lesko, who now like I would consider a, a mentor and a friend and so many other things. And I got this awesome response. I was like, we've been waiting for you to email us, <laughs> which made me feel so good. And really, um, I ultimately, yeah. That's up, so strange. Yeah. Like I would have thought that like you would have had like this imposter syndrome, like, wait, aren't they supposed to contact me? Why would I be contacting them? Um, well, I felt like I needed to hustle for myself. I wasn't the top of the the food chain, you know, coming out of the NCAA. I'd been hurt a bunch of times. I had showed some promise. But I wanted to like reach out to places that I felt like could be a really good fit for me. Um, and I loved Wazelle. Like I'd looked up a lot to Lauren. Like I'd met her for the first time when I was, I think, a freshman in college. And she was pregnant with with her son. Um, we went for a run with her. And I was like super starstruck. But also like I knew I learned a lot about the brand. I learned a lot about what they do for women and how they empower athletes. Um, and how they were so different that I, yeah, I, I wanted to reach out to them. And I was really lucky that ultimately it ended up working out. And um, I was with Wazelle kind of as a freelancer, I suppose, for a year. Um, meanwhile, I, I moved to Portland and tried to figure out my running there. And I got hurt, <laughs> very, very hurt. And then I ultimately ended up getting to have a conversation with Lauren and then moved to Bend in September of 2018. And in a way, I suppose the rest has been history. <laughs> yeah, and it's obviously going very, very well. And what what advice would you give to um, either seniors in college or people who are just finishing up who are kind of in the same position as you in terms of the need to kind of hustle to get what they want as opposed to being reactive to you know potential pitches or hoping that people will reach out to them if they want to pursue their goals? Yeah, so from what I've understood, the only people who – you know, have like agents and teams knocking on their doors are the ones who are like the NCAA champions, the ones who have like finished first or second several times. Um, and, you know, I wasn't that person. And I think most people aren't. But I think I was on a team of such amazing star studded folks that did go through that process. And I thought, oh, well, I, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be able to do this. So, you know, I got some advice from my coaches and did some soul searching and just decided to reach out. Um, and I think for anyone else who's in that position, there are absolutely opportunities to run post-collegiately. They may not be the ones that you see on Instagram the most or the ones you may like read about making the Olympic teams, or maybe they are. But there are definitely opportunities. You just have to do your research and look into them um, and be willing to kind of put yourself out there and give yourself a chance because you never know who may have been watching or who may be receptive to you reaching out. And, you know, I've known so many people who are still in the running game who have done that um, and who've run really, really well and had, you know, a lot of success and personal best. So yeah, don't give up if that's something you want to do. And shoot, the worst thing they can do is say no. And if you don't ask, that's almost like an implied no. So like you, you, you have nothing to lose. 
100%. And I did have some no's. I had some people who told me I wasn't good enough or told me I wasn't fast enough. And that was okay. But I did have people who were willing to take a chance on me. And I was willing to take a chance on myself. So I was lucky. But also, I think to an extent, you can also create some of your own luck. Now, when you had those no's, are, do you get past those? Or is that something that you you know, can feed off of uh, even now in terms of for motivation and inspiration to get to the highest level possible? Oh, 100%. It's fuel for the fire. Um, <laughs> I love being the underdog. I feel like over all these years that I've been a runner in a lot of ways, especially since college, I have been the underdog. I have been the one that like no one expects to be in the race or no one expects to be in the final. But that takes all the pressure off your shoulders. And it just makes it all the more fun when you get to like take names <laughs> and you get to be the one that surprises everyone. Um, and so, yeah, that that's really fun. And I've always fed off that energy. It'd be interesting to start to be in races where I don't get to be as much of the underdog, but I still think in many ways I am. So now you mentioned before that you were pretty starstruck when you started uh, communicating with Lauren Fleshman and started you know talking with her for, you know, in the beginning that's certainly understandable. She's a giant in this sport. Not only yeah. that, but for you specifically in like in the races you run and, you know, where you went to college, you know, it checks all the boxes. So what was it like for you evolving from someone who looked up to Lauren to someone who's now in a collaborative relationship with her? Yeah, um, it's been really cool to get to know her as a person. I mean, I knew Lauren on paper. I knew Lauren the like quintessentially amazing Stanford runner who set all the records and was a Hall of Famer like right after she graduated. And to get to know her as a person, I mean, she's super down to earth. <laughs> she has challenged me in so many ways as an athlete that like I've, you know, things I've never thought about, particularly on the mental side. Um, and she pushes me and she throws stuff at me that I don't think I can do. And she believes in me and it's it's a really cool relationship to get to have. And I still look to her for advice and I look up to her a lot. But um, it's, yeah, I've been really special to get to know her. And I, I laughed, I think, at some point last year. Um, I have a bunch of these posters on my room in my parents' house. And one of the posters is her Objectify Me poster, <laughs> her like big kind of Nike campaign from, I don't know, must be 10 years ago at this point. And I like forgot I had that on my wall. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been interesting for for me for someone who is kind of an idol to go from an idol to like a friend and a mentor and a coach but it's been a really great transition i loved that campaign that she did with nike it reminded me of the charles barkley i'm not a role model campaign mm -hmm. which was like yep. well, it was like subversive in a way but like if you take it in the right context in the context that they, they're hoping to deliver it in fact it, i think it hits all the right notes Mm hmm. Yeah. And something also that resonates with me, as I said, I felt like I needed to make my own luck. And I always looked at someone like Lauren as someone who like, you know, the pieces all fell into place for her. And that's not true. Getting to know her, she had to fight for a lot. Um, and she, you know, was a reason at Nike that they started putting, you know, athletes, <laughs> athletes in their magazines instead of models. And I think that like her ability to hustle is something that I also really, really respect and wouldn't have known had I not gotten to know her. And you mentioned that she threw a lot at you mentally. Would you mind sharing one or two things that really hit home and have had a lasting impact on you? Yeah. So um, something that we started talking about, I guess, 
a little over a year ago now, before I started running indoor, my first few races were race mantras. And that was never something I thought about. I was someone who like tried to get as physically ready for the race as I could. And then I just put myself in the starting line and like whatever happened, happened. But it's been really great to like really talk through how we're feeling, really talk about the race and then develop like a mental strategy for what I'm going to tell myself. Um, and I've had different ones over time, like different mantras, depending on the situation, but they're really great for the moments in which you feel the nerves really creeping in and you start to doubt yourself. But then if you can bring yourself back to a single, a single phrase or something that you've been able to convince yourself of, then it's really like calming in a way. And I've never felt like so calm and confident, um, stepping to starting lines, even ones in which like you know, on paper, I should get crushed. <laughs> but I feel like that has been really awesome. And the other piece of it, and I think this is for all professional runners, is that the level up, it's just so much harder. I I got my butt kicked, um, like left and right by Mel, <laughs> Mel Lawrence in particular, um, in the first fall that I came here. And she still does kick my butt quite often. She's an aerobic beast. But that was so hard going from workouts where I'd run four by mile with one minute rest at tempo pace to suddenly I'm supposed to run, you know, a six mile tempo at that pace that I'd run four by mile at, um, with no rest. (laughs) And that was really mentally taxing for me. But I realized that that kind of training and that kind of ability to push myself in practice just made me you know, so much better when I got to races, but I had to have a lot of conversations with Lauren and my teammates about it (laughs) before I figured that out. And it, uh, you know, it's a learning curve, but it's, it's been great. Now you're not the only pro. In fact, the vast majority go through that exact same, um, learning curve in terms of when they start, all of a sudden they go against, you know, veterans who've been doing this for a while and are still not only very talented, but also quite experienced and you have to kind of, I guess, one of the things where you can, you can academically know, like, all right, it's not going to be great the first year or two as I get to learn this. But was it a whole different thing actually, you know, walking down that path as opposed to knowing the path <laughs> was ahead of you? Yeah, I feel like I should have been more aware. You know, the same thing happened when I went to college. I got thrown in tempos that were my cross-country race pace just the year before um, and had to learn how to just stay in it and figure it out. But I particularly remember this workout I watched last fall where I think Mel and Collier, my teammates, ran 10 by mile and at a pace that I'd never even been able to run like three or four by mile. (laughs) And it just, I was sitting there going, I'm never going to be able to do this. I don't understand how they're able to do this. And with so much composure that they were able to do it, there's like no, you know, like pain or emotion on their face. They're just getting it done. And Lauren's like, no, yeah, you'll be able to. And though a year and a half later, I'm still not there. I still can't do 10 by mile like they can. I'm much closer. Um, And I guess, you know, you get used to it over time. It's just definitely tough at first, um, you know, getting into the swing of things. And with that said, you obviously have, you know, come out the other side because you ran in one of the most exciting mile races I've ever seen in my life. So 2019 um, Fifth Avenue mile, which was unbelievable in terms of how that race <laughs> finished up. However, you know, before that, you went through one of like the most, I don't even know what the exact adjective to use, like awkward, strange, like <laughs> episode I've ever heard. I think the first time I really you know, got to know you 
was they get I can know you in terms of like learning about you. I've never actually met you in person, but um, was the was the outside article about your experience um, in terms of being electrocuted? I I don't want to give the story. I want you to tell the story, but I need to like set the stage because I remember reading this article being like wait what like what happened this is crazy <laughs> uh you know it was written by um alex hutchinson it was you came out a couple months ago um but it was so funny because like, i remember watching fifth avenue mile and like just seeing the finish line was crazy and like, i knew that you were in it but reading this story was like oh my gosh this is so insane would you mind just like you know not necessarily going like beat for beat with the whole story, but give a short synopsis because I think if people haven't heard this part, like everyone's heard the Twitter thing, but I think this is so much more interesting. It's so wild. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, and I had no idea at the time like what had happened, but um, we had in the house I live in with my teammates, um, our oven like control panel was broken. And so instead of figuring out which switch um, like in the garage would turn on and off the electricity. I thought it was a better idea to reach all the way under the oven and like unplug and plug in the oven when I wanted to use the stove because the stove was connected to the oven. So one night I, you know, cooked my dinner, whatever. And then I'm going to plug, I think I was going to plug it back in the oven. Um, and I don't know if my finger was touching the plug that touched the outlet or my finger just went in the outlet. I think probably the latter, but I just remember like this feeling of like being frozen. <laughs> like I felt this electrical current go up my arm and through my entire body and I could not let go of the, of the plug. Um, and that happened, it felt like forever, but probably was only five seconds or so. Um, and then I just laid on the floor for a while and then looked up a bunch of stuff, you know, was worried, you know, classic WebMD stuff like, oh, what happens? What do you do if you get electrocuted? And I thought I was fine. I had a really shaky hand. Um, in fact, my hand just was shaking for probably a week. But then didn't mention it to my coach. Um, didn't mention it to anyone really other than my roommate who was there at the time. And I started, I went to practice a couple days later. And Lauren, you know, her description in the outside article is amazing. Um, but I just looked sloppy. I looked like I could not run a 33 second 200, which by the way is my pace I'd run for a mile. Um, but it looked like I couldn't run a 33 second 200 to save my life. <laughs> like in my coach at the time, Lauren seemed so calm, but I didn't realize this, that she was trying to message all these people and try to figure out what had happened to me or what was wrong. And I thought I was just overtrained and I didn't know like what was, what was wrong with me. Um, uh, but I could not function <laughs> for a week. I was, I, I could not function in practice. Um, and my hand was still shaking and it wasn't until, so Portland track festival was the next weekend. And I still two days before could not run a 33 second 200. Um, and I finally just in passing mentioned to Bob and Sarah Lesko of Wasal and, um, and Lauren that I had, Oh, haha, I'd electrocuted myself in the oven last week. And I'm like, Rebecca, are you serious? Why didn't you, why, how do you, how have you failed to mention that? That's extremely important information. Like, well, you know, I'm fine. My hand got a little red and my hand is shaky, but I, you know, I think I'm okay. And they're like, well, that's why you feel so terrible. You just completely knocked out your system. And I had never thought about it and why I'd never thought about it. I don't know now reflecting back on it. Um, but I ran that race at Portland Track Festival. I have never, yeah, I've that was so hard. And up until two minutes before the race, I didn't know if I was going to run it because I just had no idea what kind of time I'd run. Um, and 
I remember having this feeling of I got on the train of the race and I could not kick. Like I couldn't run any faster than I was running, but I ran the most even split race <laughs> I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and then from there, you know, I took an easy couple of weeks and tried to recover and really basic workouts and stuff were really hard. Um, and then after a couple of weeks, I started to feel like I had the pop in my step again. And I started to feel a little bit more like myself. Um, and, you know, over the next several weeks started running better and better. And by July, I was, you know, realized I was in, in the best shape of my life and I could kick again, but I don't know how I was able to recover <laughs> from something like that so quickly. I think in a lot of ways, I was really lucky because it could have been a lot more permanent. Um, but I learned two things. One, tell your coach <laughs> when something odd happens to you. And two, uh, don't touch oven outlets. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, most people learn that at a younger age, but I'm glad you got there, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm glad that you got there. And now, you, you know, hopefully, you know, those types of things aren't always going to be trial and error moving forward. Yeah, I do have to add one detail though. So you have to, in order to unplug and plug the oven, you have to reach all the way under the oven so you can't actually see the outlet. So you're kind of just fumbling around trying to plug it in or like pull the plug out. So that was a, a big reason for why why it happened that way because you know my shoulder, like my entire arm, was inside the under the oven, so I couldn't see anything. But not that that makes it any better. <laughs> just had to throw that detail in there. That is that is so wild. And you bounced back, man. And then that, that race was unbelievable. Molly Huddle and the, the El Perrier, they finished like, I don't think you can have a finish as close as that one. Uh, you mentioned when you were at Stanford, you you diving for fifth place uh, in two different occasions. Uh, it was that kind of thing. Now, it, now here we are um, in the last couple weeks. This must this must be just the wildest couple weeks. Um, in your life, like just looking back on, I'm trying to think like, all right, here you are a professional runner who's an, who was amped to kind of go through um, your first Olympic trials buildup and to get there. You have, you know, working in local government with everything going on with COVID-19. And then, you know, all of a sudden you like hitting the national spotlight with like this tweet, you know, with this tweet that all of a sudden just <laughs> goes completely viral. What's it like, you know, t t putting the, the, the Twitter stuff aside, I think that, you know, that, that's obviously very interesting, but with the with the running and then with the local government piece, what is it like the past two weeks juggling all of this emotional stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a hard two weeks. I think it's been a hard two weeks for a lot of people for different reasons. But watching my season unravel and watching the races fall off the calendar was really hard. And I think that a lot of us knew that the Olympics being postponed or canceled was really inevitable. It just hadn't happened yet. Um, and it's been, it's been tough. I mean, it makes sense. I completely support the decision. I think the IOC did a decent job um, surveying the athletes. And I think over 80% of people said like the Olympics need to be postponed. Um, it's just, you know, an odd thing when you've been looking forward to it for so long and then suddenly it's gone, but it, it isn't, it's just postponed. It'll be, you know, in a year instead of in a couple of months. Um, that being said, I'm still hoping there will be some sort of track season. Um, I'm in great shape. <laughs> I'm excited to race and I hope that there still is, is some sort of opportunity, but, um, yeah, in terms of the local government side, it's been crazy. I mean, I am doing my best to work with. So my boss, um, Sally Russell is a mayor of Bend. Um, I've been doing my best to, you know, help her communicate with the public um, and let everyone know what's going on and what the newest policies are, um, reading over like different speeches and communications um, that 
she is putting out and talking points. And then also I've gotten to be on the phone call, um, a couple different conference calls with uh, Governor Kate Brown, <laughs> which is a really cool opportunity for me to get to be on the front lines of hearing, you know, what what the policy changes are going to be and why. Um, and yeah, it's really hard. I mean, the other part of my job is kind of helping to manage your emails. And it's a lot of people emailing and a lot of people nervous and, and scared and frustrated, some of them by the policies, small business owners who don't understand why they, you know, have to close their shops. And so that's like definitely taking a toll on me. <laughs> it's definitely weighing on me getting, you know, it, it's really important work and I want people to be educated and I love public service. And this is just the hard side of it um, is, you know dealing with a global pandemic that no one could have expected. But, you know, we're all doing our best. It's a hard time, but we'll get through it. There will be another side. All we can really do in the meantime is social distance and wash our hands. There you go. Now, how have you and Lauren changed your training uh, for the spring, considering that you don't need to be ready, say, like for Peyton Jordan and some of the other races that you almost certainly were going to be a part of? Yeah, so we were ready to hit some good track workouts. Um, and instead of hitting some of these track workouts, we haven't like completely come up with a plan yet because the you know Olympics was only taken off the calendar a couple of days ago. Um, but just keeping the mileage up, staying off the track. I mean, tracks are really closed anyways. They're hard to get onto. Um, so we're doing, you know, fartlicks and tempo work, kind of pretending like we're in the fall again um, when we're back to kind of basics and in a holding pattern until hopefully some races can confirm they can be back on the calendar, which will only happen after states start to say it'll be safe on this certain date. So, you know, everything's really uncertain, but just going to keep putting in the work and keep training. There will be a championship and an opportunity to race eventually. It just, you know, could be in July, could be next year. I don't know, but either way, putting in the work now makes sense. But yeah, hopefully I have more of a robust plan over the next few weeks. But then again, it's hard for anyone to plan these days. Okay. Now, two more questions before we get going. You've been so generous with your time and I so much appreciate it. All right. In the fall, when things are, when things are back to normal, you're hitting your stride, you're killing it. Your first time towing the line against Nikki, who's going to win? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I know that was, that was so unfair, but you, but I know you've been racing against her for so long. I had <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. Actually, we have all these goofy photos of us, like from when we were much younger and then also in high school. Um, I will say she, in the recent last couple of years, she has definitely beaten me more times than I've gotten her. Um, but then again, it's, it's not about that on any given day. Someone can can have a better day than someone else. Um, for me, it's just all about giving yourself a chance and no matter who's in the field and seeing what happens. But I don't know. I hope the best for her too. There you go. Hope the best for her and hope she enjoys second place as you take first. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm we'll just see. kidding. We'll see. I'm just kidding. All right. All right. Last question. As a breakfast burrito connoisseur, what are the must-haves and what are the things that absolutely are not welcome in your breakfast burrito? Yes, this is my favorite question. Thank you for asking it. Um, I I like breakfast burritos a lot of ways, um, and I will not discriminate. I will say, and this will make a lot of people gasp, but I do not like bacon. I never have liked bacon, but I'm a big fan of sausage in a breakfast burrito. You got to have eggs. Um, for me, you got to have avocado. I'm a Californian. Um, I like some good tasty salsa. Um, if you have some good like hash browns or potatoes in there, that's a must. 
Um, and for me, I think the thing that makes a breakfast burrito the best is if they actually like will warm up or grill the outside. That's like the ultimate. Um, but really, I don't discriminate. I think one of my favorites actually is from Tourist Home in Flagstaff, Arizona. <laughs> that is a go-to. It's so good. Um, but yeah, there are many places with great ones. I have a question about the sausage. I actually I prefer sausage to bacon in a breakfast burrito as well. How do you like your sausage cut for the breakfast burrito? Yeah, so I'd prefer definitely smaller pieces. I think that if you get like too big of chunks, then it can kind of take over the flavor of the bite. Um, so like small pieces of sausage is super ideal. But also I'm very into like veggie, veggie breakfast burritos too. I don't need sausage in there. But the only thing that's like a must are the eggs, the like some good potatoes, some salsa and some avocado, and then it's it's good to go. <laughs> yeah, see, I've had the sausage cut the long way into two pieces before. Oh. And basically laid like side by side. Yeah, I'm not and a fan that of that. And at first I was like, oh, I didn't expect that. And then I was like, you know, it's not it's not too bad because you get you basically you get some in every bite, but it does like change the, like the texture and the consistency. Yeah. No, I like it much better if it's cut in the smaller bits. Cause then it's like much more integrated, like especially the best ones I've had actually, or when, oh my gosh, I don't know how I forgot to say cheese. Cheese needs to be in the breakfast burrito. I'm a big cheese fiend. It's like my favorite food. Um, but it's really good if they scramble the eggs with cheese and with the sausage, cause then it's really nice and integrated. <laughs> That's how I would make them. Exactly. You get like the egg scramble for the breakfast burrito, as opposed to like adding the ingredients in the tortilla. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's how I would make it if I had my own breakfast burrito making place. <laughs> That's what we need. See, this is the hard one knowledge we need on the Rambling Runner podcast. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with everything in Bend and with the upcoming track season where and whenever and wherever it kicks off. Thank you so much. It was so great to, to chat with you. Thanks for having me on. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show. I told you, I told all of you in the intro that this was a great one. And I'm sure you feel the same way because, man, who could not love this woman? She is so fantastic in so many ways. And as you all know, I don't like to have pro runners on this podcast very often because this is for and about dedicated amateur runners. And the times that I do have them on is because I know that they're sharing something or some things that resonate across all running levels. And absolutely, Rebecca brought that to the table today. Again, Rebecca, thank you so much. Also, uh, thanks so much to our sponsors. We got Prevenex and we got VDOT. Those guys are great. I love the VDOT app. It helps me as a runner and as a coach. And I take Prevenex every single day. And so should you. Also, last shout out. We got the 5K starting tomorrow. The virtual race series. It is here. And I can't wait to get started. Also, you don't have to run all the races. Next weekend is the 10K. Then a week off. Then the half marathon. And then three weeks off. And then the marathon. Whew. That's a lot. But I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. So thank you so much for listening. And happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. 
enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.